Welcome into In Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. David, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing fantastic. The weather outside is supposed to get a little stormy, but we're going to keep it going in here. So this week, we've been looking at Athletes of the Week, this month, I should say. And when you look at it, we've looked at the different baseball all-star game performances that we deem the best, I could say. Last night's all-star performance, Vlad Jr. came out with the MVP of that. But this week's we're going to look at is Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter in the 2000 All-Star Game went 3-for-3 in the game while recording an RBI as well. Jeter's three hits came against Randy Johnson, Kevin Brown, and Al Leitner. Jeter would go on to be named the game's MVP and later that season become the first player to be the All-Star Game and World Series MVP in the same season. So that's our second Athlete of the Week this month. And I brought up Vlad Jr. Last, Last night's performance was fantastic. Which one would you deem more impressive? Derek Jeter or Vlad Jr. last night? For me, I'm going to say Derek Jeter. I think they're both very impressive uh, performances, but it's the uh, like the perfect day uh, with Derek Jeter. Uh, three for three. Not, not too many, not uh, extra base hits, but still getting on base is very important. The home run from Vladdy was fantastic, but I think the All-Star game is just different now and to me Jeter's meant a little more yeah and there's nothing taken away from Jeter's performance whatsoever I have to go with Vlad Jr. on this one just because one the longest home run in all-star game history in the stat cast era the next closest to him was 410 that was Chris Bryant he had a 468 foot home run Vlad Jr. did he went one for three in the game but he had two RBIs to go with it he was the first Blue Jays All-Star Game MVP and the youngest to win the All-Star Game MVP. When I look at those accolades, I'm like, yeah, I go. I just have to go with that one. But both those performances were fantastic. You could have went either way. And when you look at Derek Jeter, the pitching matchups he went up against, those were some good pitchers back in the day. So I definitely could go either way on that one. And yesterday, there was a birthday. It was NBA, Ray, NBA legend Ray Allen, his 46th birthday. Allen enjoyed a 19-year NBA career playing for the Milwaukee Bucks, Seattle Supersonics, the Boston Celtics, and the Miami Heat. Allen's widely regarded as a top three shooter in NBA history and has the career leading in most three-pointers made at 2,973 career threes made. Allen was a 10-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA, and Rookie of the Year. Allen also won two NBA championships and made a clutch three in Game 6 of the 2013 NBA Finals to force overtime, and the Heat would go on to win that series as they would win Game 6 in OT and Game 7 for his second NBA championship. Allen was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame in 2018. When you look at Ray Allen, it's clear as day he's a top, to me, a top two shooter of all time. Him and Steph Curry. Now, you get one shot to win the game. Steph or Ray Allen, who you taking? I think my gut reaction is Steph. If if it's just a like catch and shoot spot up shot, you could sway me to Ray Allen, but Steph Curry's uh just dribbling, playmaking, and the ability to get open and take those really contested shots is what puts him over over Ray Allen, but Ray Allen that 2013 uh, corner three, absolutely fantastic. 
seared in my brain. It was amazing. Yeah, both these guys, you really couldn't go wrong with either either of these guys shooting the game winner for you. So when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, I was like, I need to know who was more clutch, you could say. And I looked up statistically in clutch shots made over their career. Ray Allen shot 36%, 36.5%, and Steph Curry shot 33.3% in clutch shots. So not a huge difference. So both of them pretty clutch. I went with Ray Allen just because of the moment you brought up. That game six, corner three, you could argue that that's the clutchest shot in NBA history. You could make an argue, a valid argument for that. And LeBron James had a quote about Ray Allen, and it stuck with me when I was trying to think about who I would pick. He said, Ray can be 0 for 99 in a game, and if he gets an open look for the game, it's going in every single time. So that's for me. I went with Ray Allen in this one, but you really, either way, you are you have a very high per- percentage that you make that bucket and that you win the game. And also today in sports, in 1973, Atlanta Brave legend Hank Aaron launched his 700th home run in his career. Aaron would go on to hit 755 home runs over his illustrious career. He won the batting title twice and a Most Valuable Player in 1957. He was inducted into the MLB Hall of Fame in 1982. So obviously, a great accolade, accolade to bring up today with Hank Aaron. Do you think anyone will ever hit 700 home runs again? Yeah, I think it's possible. It's going to have to be uh, definitely some extreme circumstances. Uh, a young guy who starts quickly, has a long career, and just slugs throughout it. I think right now in the league, the best chance is probably Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Ronald Acuna Jr. You just have to be young and be able to hit 40-plus home runs a year, stay healthy, and have a long career. It's going to be tough, but I think it can happen again. It really is going to be very tough. That's why I leaned no on this one. I look at it, pitchers in today's game, I mean, you have pitchers that are starting to consistently hit up around 100 miles an hour on some of their pitches. It's getting even more difficult to hit the baseball. And I look at, throughout time, only three guys have ever reached that milestone of 700-plus home runs, one of which, whether you believe so or not, possibly used illegal substances. And then you look at another player, played for 22 years and started playing in 1914, the game has just changed and adapted so much since then. And so for me, I just feel like, no, I don't think we'll see it again because so much would have to go right. It would be fantastic to see it again, don't get me wrong, but just so much would have to go right for that to happen. And I do have a quick trivia question for you on this one. Do you know who the youngest player by age was to hit 700 home runs? Not off the top of my head. But I'm going to say probably Alex Rodriguez. It was Babe Ruth. Dang it. He got it 39 years, 156 days. That's when he hit his 700th home run. And so now, after we looked at our social media posts throughout the week, be sure to check those out as they go out every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We're now going to shift over to the NBA. NBA Finals, the Bucks steal one from the Suns there. 2-1 series now. We're going to do a little buy or sell for the rest of this series. Take a look at these factors, and if you buy, if those are going to happen, or if you're going to sell that. So first one, 
Devin Booker will need to score over 100 points the rest of the series to close out the box. You buying or selling that? I'm going to buy that. And I think the only like real argument there that he won't is if the Suns close it out in the next two games. Because then he'd only he'd have to go off for 52 games in a row, which he is more than capable of doing. But if if you look at it and it goes four games, four more games, so seven total, he only has to hit 25 points a game. And that's a normal day at the office for Devin Booker. He's probably putting up more than that on the average game in this uh, upcoming games. So I'm going to buy that. And it, I think it's relatively easy to say he's, he's going for over 100 in the next four games. Yeah, and I'm going to sell it just because I don't think they're going to have to play the games. That was the argument you brought up. That's the one I'm going with. I don't think they're going to have to play any more than, I'd say, probably three games max, in my opinion. And if you look at it, probably only two. I mean, the Suns team's fantastic. You have other guys stepping up for you. Devin Booker didn't have a great game two nights ago. And they still they lost by 20, but this team is still fine. They've been in this situation before where they've dropped the game to a good team, and Devin Booker hasn't played all that great. He's capable of doing it, absolutely, but I don't think they're going to need it. And even if they do have to play four games, I'm not necessarily sold that they need 100 points from him because there is so much talent with him. I mean, Chris Paul, you got Cam Johnson. you got guys who can step up. And I just don't think they'll need 100 from him no matter how long this series goes. Like I said, I think... They only play two more games. But if it does happen to go longer than that, you have other guys who can help out. This isn't like the Bucks, in my opinion, where you look at Giannis. If he's not scoring 35, 40 points a game, they're losing probably. And even if he is scoring that much, still a good chance that you lose that game. So I think the situations are quite different right there. Now we're going to look at Giannis here. You buying or selling that Giannis will score 35-plus the rest of the way in this series per game? I'm going to say yes, I'm going to buy that because he has to. There, there are good scorers on this Bucks team. Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, sometimes Brooke Lopez. Emphasis on sometimes. But two even stay in games to win games, Giannis has to be putting up a lot of points. He's their main scorer. He's going to need to have 35 points. And even in the games so far, he he's up there scoring near 35. And when he doesn't, they lose. So he has to score a lot. So I, I think it's, to me... I'm going to buy that. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. He has to if they want to try to win games in this series. I'm going to sell it just because I'm not I'm not sold that he's going to be able to take 35-plus a game. And like I said earlier, I think the Suns only take two more games and they win this series. If they're going to win the next two games, Giannis is going to have to have in one of those games a down game, I guess you could call it, where he doesn't play as well and allows the Suns to take advantage and win the game. So for me... I just don't know if I trust Giannis to consistently score 35-plus the rest of this way, especially with how well the Suns have been playing. He had a good opportunity in the last game because a lot of the Suns shooters weren't playing all that great. 
he's not he's going to have less opportunities this time around. Can he be consistent with it? I don't know. I'm not sold on that. So for me, I don't think he will score 35 plus the rest of the way and I think that's going to end the series. It's going to send the Bucks home. And so now I've pretty much given my take on this, but are you buying or selling the Bucks will take home game 4 tonight at home? I'm going to say no. I don't think so. The main the main reason you you talked about Giannis and the main reason I think he's going to have a down game is DeAndre Ayton. I really believe that Ayton is going to be able to stay out of foul trouble. That's not an easy task when you have one of the best players in the league in Giannis Antetokounmpo charging at you just trying to get to the basket. It's not easy to not foul him. So it's it's really kind of on DeAndre Ayton if he can stay out of foul trouble, stay in the game for a lot longer. I think the Suns can pretty easily take it. Last game, uh, game three when they lost, DeAndre Ayton only played 24 minutes. In those 24 minutes, uh, the team as a whole was only minus six, which is kind of not great, but compared to guys like Chris Paul and Devin Booker, who are both minus 13. I think DeAndre Ayton is probably the biggest factor in locking up Giannis. So I'm going to sell that. Yeah, I'm going to sell it too, and I've gone over it quite a bit here as to why I'm selling the Bucks losing this game. So now we're going to move on to the next one here. The Suns win in five. You buying or selling that? I'm going to sell that one. I think it's possible. It would just require taking this game and uh, the next one in Phoenix. I think they win in six because either tonight or uh, game five, there's going to be a, just Giannis is going to have another huge game. He's going to go off for probably 50 points, uh, 40 or 50 points. uh, And there's going to be, in addition to that, a game where maybe DeAndre Ayton is in foul trouble again, or either Devin Booker or Chris Paul is having a down shooting night. So I think just the possibility of one of those two things happening for the Suns and Giannis being an MVP level player, I think they're going to be able to push this one past five games. Yeah, I'm going to buy that the Suns win in five here. I do that because when I look at this Suns team going up against the Bucks, the Suns had a down night. The Bucks took advantage and they won. I don't expect the Suns to have consistent bad nights, especially back to back. I have them winning in Milwaukee, coming back to Phoenix in a closeout game. That crowd's going to be rocking. That place is going to be loud. And in game two, Giannis scored 42 points, and the Suns still won by 10. So I'm looking at it. You got Giannis putting up good numbers. Chris Paul and Devin Booker not playing great is pretty It's surprise. It doesn't happen all the time. Can you get that twice in a series where both of them aren't going to play good? It would be a surprise to me. So for me, I have them taking this in five. I think they steal it in Milwaukee tonight and then close out game at home in Phoenix. It would be very tough for them to drop that game. So now we're going to take a look at here. Chris Middleton, Do you are you buying or selling that he is a greater asset than Chris Paul? I'm going to buy that. I think he's a bigger asset than Chris Paul. Uh, 
just based off contracts. Right now, as it stands, uh, Chris Paul is he has a player option going into the uh, off season, or he's going to be a free agent. I can't recall which, but more than likely, it seems that he's looking for a longer term deal. Chris Middleton is younger and already locked up till twenty twenty three, so it's just the control you have with that player. And the kind of assurance, as much as there's an assurance of uh, lack of regression, uh, because Chris Middleton is so much younger, he's probably going to be a little more consistent in his play, a little more athletic. And I think he he's a little slept on. I'm not personally the biggest fan, but... I think overall he's underrated with how his defense passing, dribbling, and scoring is valued. He's really an all-around player. Chris Paul is too, but I think there's a little more inconsistency there, and you don't have as much control in terms of contracts. So I'm going to buy that Chris Middleton is more valuable. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of future team building that he is more valuable. So I'm going to take a look at it in terms of this series. And when I look at it in terms of this series, the bigger asset, I'm going to go with Chris Paul in this one because with Chris Paul, one, he's going to bring you leadership, night in, night out. That's something that's never going to leave. So he could be having a down night. At least you have that veteran leadership from him to pick up the guys around him. In terms of assist. I mean, they call him the point god for a reason. He's got great ball handling. He sets up other players. And that's why you've seen other scorers step up on this Suns team. He's a big help in that. And so I'm, and Chris Paul also, I mean, any given night, he could go out there and score you 25, 30 points. He, he has that capability still. So for me, I'm going with Chris Paul just because Middleton, fantastic player. And if you're building a team in the future, I'm, I'm rolling with him too. But when I look at what he's done throughout the postseason, He's been pretty streaky this postseason. I mean, you're either getting fantastic play. When Giannis was out, fantastic. It was like, okay, if you can keep this consistent with Giannis, things are going to look really good for your team. But then he has some down nights. Game two, I believe he only scored, I think it was 11 points in the game. And you just can't have that when you're on this Bucks team where it's you and Giannis. You're kind of the lead dogs in terms of scoring. So if someone has a bad night, you're probably going to drop that game. That was the same game that Giannis scored 42 points. Milton steps up, gets 15, 20 points. They come out on top of that game probably. So for me, in terms of this series, I'm going to roll with Chris Paul. And now our last buy or sell here, the Bucks are more likely to return to the finals next season than the Phoenix Suns. you buying or selling that? I'm selling that. I think the Suns had a great regular season, uh, very hot in the postseason. And they were two seed, and they played like the two seed. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to uh, keep that high level of play and that two seed, essentially, in the next season. It really depends if Chris Paul is still with the team and still uh, performing at the same level. But with the Bucks, I think they, they had a much easier path than normal against uh, the Nets, especially the Hawks. The, that was relatively easy as well. Not that 
they were uh, just a pushover team, but they they didn't have the overall team building that the Bucks did. So I think next year the net, uh, the Bucks are going to have a much tougher road to the finals than the Suns are. I think the Suns are going to have a somewhat similar road to the finals. Yeah, when I look at this, it's a little difficult because, I mean, you look at the Bucks and I see the competition they have going through. It's going to be your same teams, just healthy, okay? You look at the West, it's the same situation there in the West, just healthy. The Lakers, round one, they're going to have Anthony Davis back. They were up 2-1, and if Anthony Davis stays healthy in this series, we may not be see the Suns playing right now. They may have got bounced round one by that Lakers team. It Game three was a dominant victory by the Lakers. LeBron James was showing off a little bit, and then AD got hurt and everything changed. Suns run that series. And then you move on, you got the Clippers, minus Kawhi Leonard. It's Both have difficult paths, but I think the Bucks, in terms of getting there, it is a little bit easier just because the conference they're in. That's just the way it is being in the East. So for me, both teams are going to have a hard path. And I would say their likelihood of getting back, both of them get pretty challenging. A lot a lot of health uh, concerns out the window. They have new players back. I mean, even you look at the Nuggets, getting back Jamal Murray, I mean, that's also a huge one. So for me, I think it's kind of the same. I think for me, they have the same chance of getting back obviously the bucks i think in the east and then with the suns in the west when you look at it, the suns their path is going to get far more difficult but they're a better team they have a better chance of getting through that gauntlet this bucks team their path is going to get more difficult but their conference in general is weaker so i like their likelihoods just about the same so now speaking of the clippers and some injuries Kawhi leonard had a successful surgery on his partially torn ACL looking at this injury how worried are you I'm pretty worried he's definitely just the best player on the Clippers he's not young anymore he's uh, around 30 I think 29 and like I said he's the best player ACL injuries can derail careers I think it's less common than it was 10 years ago. It's less common to have your career derailed uh, from an ACL injury than it was five years ago. But it's still possible. It definitely changes the way you cut, the way you move, how you defend, how you shoot. It changes everything. And coming back from that is not easy. So... With his age around 30 and just the intense rehab he's going to have to do and for how long that is, I'm I'm worried about the Clippers overall. Kawhi, less so, because I think he's just the fundamentals he has will be able to keep him in this league on a in a probably top 50 player role uh, for... A number of years to come. Yeah, I'm going to look at it in terms of this Clippers team. Okay, he is your star. He's your number one, like you said. So if he doesn't play well, the Clippers don't play well. If he's on the court, you're a successful team moving forward. 
And if you're the Clippers looking at this, you say, okay, who's a player who hasn't come back all the way? They back from injury, but still not to the level that they were at. I look at it as partner in crime. I look at Paul George after his ankle injury. Paul George was ascending to a top five player in the NBA with the Pacers. He was fantastic, had the Pacers in contention year in, year out. After that injury, he really, he's been a good player, but it's not been that Pacers Paul George. We talked about it multiple times. He's not been the same guy. So you instantly have to worry about that for Kawhi. He still could be good, but if he's not Kawhi Leonard good like you expected him when you signed him, this Clippers team instantly gets a lot worse playing in the Western Conference. Things are going to get more difficult for you. So yes, you have to worry. You have to worry if you're a fan, the Clippers, or Kawhi Leonard. That's another thing with Leonard. He does have a bit of an injury history, a little more extensive because he went out of San Antonio, but he does have an injury history at that. Is this going to start something now getting a little bit older? Is it going to start to get more injuries to you? If that's the case, it's going to be scary for Kawhi and the Clippers at that. And now looking at his timeline from an ACL, when do you expect him to come back? I think it depends on basically the medical aspect of it. How severe was the tear? Uh, Because just from the brief research I've done on ACL tears, which is very brief. Um, a partial tear is around three months. A complete tear is minimum eight months. So with three months, I think he can still be back. I I really don't think he's going to be back for the first game of the season. Just out of an abundance of caution even if it is more in that uh, partial tear range, really, you want to make sure he is 100% healthy, has enough time to fully rest in the offseason. So I think he he won't be playing uh, the first game of the season. Yeah, he definitely won't be on the court game one. And you talked about rushing a player back. You want to obviously have a positive timeline. You want to get him back into action as quick as possible. But at the same time, you do not want to rush any bit of that rehab. And when you look at it, Clay Thompson tore his ACL in the finals. So the timeline, a little bit off, but not all that much. When Clay Thompson tore his ACL, he came back early in the next season. What happened? Tore his Achilles. When you come back from an injury like this, and you're not fully ready and you go through all this hard training, you're going to start, if you don't take this slow in the right way, you're going to start to kind of overcompensate on different muscles. And then all of a sudden, you get hurt somewhere else because you're putting too much pressure there in one region. And that's what we saw with Clay Thompson. With Kawhi Leonard, if you're the Clippers, take this slow. I think Paul George showed you that he has enough to keep the Clippers within playoff range while Kawhi Leonard rehabs, because if you can get him back at midseason, a little bit before midseason, the Clippers will still make the postseason. It'll be okay. You'll still get in. Now, in terms of playoff success, yes, you're going to play some tougher teams, but would you rather play some tougher teams down lower in the seeding, or would you rather have everyone healthy? And you look at the, what the Lakers did this year. They went for the, okay, we'll take the lower seed. I want everyone healthy. And Like I talked about earlier, Lakers were up 2-1, and it was a dominating win in Game 3. Everything looked Lakers. Everything did. Anthony Davis got hurt again, 
and then that's when everything changed. He stays healthy. There's a good chance they win that series. So I'm following that blueprint and hoping that your stars can just stay healthy in the very end. And we've talked about Kawhi Leonard and his player option quite a bit. Do you think this injury has an effect on his what he could have done with that option? I I certainly believe so. It it really depends on at this point in his career, what is he valuing more? Uh, is it money or is it rings? Because if it's money, I think he accepts he he gets that guaranteed money from the Clippers. You you have the contract secured. If it's rings, I think he declines rehabs in an independent way, uh, not with the team. And maybe he takes a little bit of time uh, off going into the season and signs midseason with a contender because you get a little look at, all right, which teams are having a hot start, which are underperforming. It, it could be something like that. And I think the way I'm leaning towards would probably be declining the player option. It, it'll be interesting to see if he does, and if so, how early he signs and where he signs. Yeah, and I talked about it a little bit when we talked about the Clippers playoff series that I thought with how well the Clippers played that he was going to come back. He was going to accept that option and try to make a run with this team because the Clippers in general played really well. Paul George, Reggie Jackson, DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, those veterans that they expected to play well did. And so now you're in a good situation. You think, okay, I can come back into this. Yes, some of those veterans are free agents, but they do have some money to spend. They can try to get some guys back. They won't get everyone back. I think a guy like Reggie Jackson's out of their price range at this point after the postseason he had. But I thought, okay, for sure he's sticking around. And I think even more so now that he is, he will be sticking around just because it's so tough coming back off that injury. Teams would be interested in him. Don't get me wrong. They would be. They would. They, do you look at Kevin Durant? He got hurt in the finals. Still got a huge contract. New team the year after. Didn't even play one time for the Nets in year one. And it worked out well for them. They got a dominant Kevin Durant back in return. So teams would be interested. But the way I see this, Kawhi Leonard, I think... He's going to stick it out. He's going to go back. And just because I think the injury also pushes him towards going back. You're getting that guaranteed money. And you have an opportunity to run it back with this team that made a step forward, in my opinion. This this last playoffs, they took a step forward into what they should have been year one. So I think Kawhi comes back and the injury just kind of helps cement that idea that, hey, we're going to try to run this back one more time. So we're going to take our first break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to take a look at Team USA and Lonzo Ball's back in the headlines. We'll take a look at that and more. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And like I said before we went to break, we're going to take a look at Team USA here. One and two in pool play so far. Two losses early on. Start out 0-2. Before they got that win versus Argentina, are you worried about Team USA? No. I, they might. This might not happen every Olympics, but in these kind of tune-up games in the pool play, I, they don't try all that hard. They're still getting that chemistry together. Coming off, a decent number of these players are 
coming pretty much right off of the playoffs and haven't had time to practice together. So they just don't try all that hard in the games that quote-unquote don't matter. So I'm not worried. I think they should play pretty well in the Olympics. Gold, I don't know. We'll, we'll see as the uh, as time progresses, but I, I think they're going to be okay. Yeah, I, th- I think they're fine too. And when you look at it, the roster they have, if you're not fine, there's an issue there. I mean, these are stars that are playing. In the last couple of times, there hasn't necessarily been like the huge stars, but there's huge stars in this one. You're looking at Bam Adebayo, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker is going to join the team here soon. Kevin Durant, arguably the best player in the NBA right now. Damian Lillard, I mean, there's top-tier players. Jason Tatum, also. These are top-tier guys. This is elite talent in the NBA today. So, no, I'm not worried about them. Like I said, tune-up game. I think that's what this is. Now, looking at this team, is there any other ways that they can improve other than just trying? Yeah, I think part of that is just trying more. And anytime you have one of these like super teams, uh, like, for example, the Brooklyn Nets, what do they struggle with the most? Defense and rebounding. That's what Team USA struggles with the most. And some of that is going to be rectified with just effort, trying a little more. And I think some of it is a little bit of uh, personnel and just, uh, matchups and working together with a solid game plan and uh, under one coach knowing exactly what you're doing, building that chemistry. But overall, I think that they'll be fine. It's defense, just try a little harder. Rebounding, also just try harder and you'll be fine. Yeah, and when look at improvements to this team. I mean, the biggest one that I'm looking at, things they can improve on, I mean, your team has lost a couple of games. Why not add Devin Booker, who probably will end up with Finals MVP if he keeps playing the way he has? That's a nice addition to your team. So, for me, that's all you really need to do. I mean, just go out there, kind of learn the chemistry a little bit. I mean, you got Greg Popovich, one of the best coaches in NBA history. You have everything you need. Now just go out there and perform. And I think we see a big jump from Team USA once they hit tournament time. Now we're going to take a look at Pelicans star Lonzo Ball. He's unlikely to have a big offer matched by the Pelicans. Looking at Lonzo and everything he's been through, Lakers getting traded to the Pelicans, now the Pelicans not really showing a true interest in wanting him back. Do you think this helps his career moving off to a new team if he gets a big offer? I think it does. He he. Overall, I think moving from the Lakers was helpful just getting a change in scenery. Sometimes you need that. And he's played well with the Pelicans as of late, but they're still kind of building. They don't have really an identity, and it's it's kind of showing. Uh, obviously, you have Zion Williamson, who your star you're going to build around for the future, but there isn't a whole lot around that that Lonzo can work with. So I think him moving to a different team is going to be helpful. Uh, Salary-wise, 
it it should be interesting because he's a restricted free agent so the pelicans can match that offer and keep him for a year but it's how much are they willing to spend and i don't think it's all that much yeah when i look at will this help his career i'm not sold that it will because when you look at pelicans unlikely to match a big offer to lonzo when you look at these good teams in the nba what type of team's going to offer a big offer for lonzo to me i don't think it's going to be these top tier teams i think you're going to see maybe mid teams to late teams that lower teams i should say not late lower teams in the standings that could use a guy like lonzo would step in and be fantastic for them one team that comes to mind for me would be the chicago bulls that i could see them making an offer for lonzo and now if that's the situation you put lonzo in possibly it could help his career out but i mean if you start dropping lower than teams like the bulls will that really help his future i'm not sold that it will this Pelicans team, there's issues there, clearly. Zion, there's rumors that Zion doesn't want to play there anymore. He may ask to be traded, try to get to somewhere new. There's issues with the Pelicans and that organization. I mean, it started with Anthony Davis. Now we're moving to Zion. And now Lonzo, too. So maybe it will help him in the long run. But I do think getting somewhere new, as long as it's not just a bottom-tier team where he really has to be the guy to, for them to be successful... He's the one selling jerseys and putting fans in the seats. As long as he doesn't have to be that guy, he'll be fine. It'll help his career out tremendously because he got thrusted into the spotlight when he got drafted by the Lakers. You could talk about, was it LeVar, the pressure he put on him? Maybe. He needs to go somewhere where he can be a number three type guy and he will be successful. And I think that will help his career. I just don't want to see him go to a bad team for big money and have to be that true number one guy. And now speaking of those expectations that LeVar gave him when he got drafted by the Lakers, will he ever live up to that expectation? I don't think so. Unless he he really turns things around. Well, that's that's a bad way of phrasing it because I think he's a very good role player, a starting role player, but he's not the out of this world all all star uh MVP guy that you wanted when you drafted him number 2 overall still he's he's very good for where what he is if you are realistic about him and i think he can really add to a number of teams i don't know exactly how the money works out but the three spots that jump out to me you mentioned the Bulls, I think that's a great fit. They really need more passing. Uh, he's been linked to the Lakers, which if Schroeder does uh, go into free agency, I think Lonzo is a little bit of an upgrade. I think he buys in more to the team philosophy than Dennis Schroeder did. Or, again, not sure how the money works exactly. It'd probably be a little bit of a maybe a sign-in trade with the Celtics because they have big needs for a point guard. They've they've needed a point guard since Kyrie Irving. And I I think Lonzo could be part of that. And something that always kind of uh, eludes my mind, he's so young. 
he was drafted in 2017, but he's only 23. So he still has a lot of time to grow and exceed expectations. Yeah, when I look at his expectations that were set for him going into the draft, number two overall pick, no, he's not ever going to live up to those expectations, the number two pick, and also the pressure that LeVar put on him. I mean, he was talking about him coming in and being better than Steph Curry, like that being the savior of the Lakers. That's shoes that LeBron James barely even filled, and he's been the greatest player of my generation. So when you look at it, no, he's never going to live up to that type of expectation. Now, if you use him correctly, he can be a fine player in this league, and I think he's on his way to becoming that. And I thought the, the Bulls, that's a team for me that makes a lot of sense. He steps right in with Zach Levine. He's kind of the Zach Levine's the guy for Chicago who's he sells the jerseys for that place. He brings people into the stands. That's what Zach Levine does for the Bulls. He's that star. And now you have other guys in the organization. They made a big trade with Orlando. And now you bring in a guy like Lonzo Ball. That's a situation that could work. He's now a number three, number four type guy. That fits. That's perfect. And you talked about a couple other teams there that made a lot of sense as well. But for me, he just has to get somewhere and get comfortable. With the Lakers, it was always a question if he was going to get traded as nearly as soon as he stepped on the court. It was very few games into his career that it was, okay, we could possibly trade Lonzo. Especially once LeBron got there, it was, okay, you could very well get traded and you could get moved. And he never had that sense of security. I thought he was going to get that with the Pelicans, but clearly that's not the case. It, with their unwillingness or unlikeliness, I should say, to match a big offer, I think even there, they're like, okay, we can do better. We can move on from you. Get him somewhere where he can be comfortable. I don't think he gets a massive deal, but I mean, I'd like to see him get some security. I don't know what team would do it, but get him a three, four-year deal. And so you know, okay, I'm sticking around. This is where I'm going to be at because that's going to help him the most within his career. And I'd like to find a happy medium between markets, I should say, for him. Better than the Pelicans, but not Los Angeles Lakers, like top-tier NBA market. I'd like to find a happy medium. Once again, it points me to Chicago, a team that I think would make sense for him. So for me, I don't think he lives up to expectations, but I don't think he ever was going to before he ever stepped onto a court in the NBA. Now we're going to shift into the NFL here. Each week we've been giving our predictions. Each We went division by division, and now we're on to the AFC North. A very exciting division at that, our last AFC division that we have. There's, in my opinion, a good argument that three of these teams could win this division. So I'm excited to see who you have winning the AFC North. Yeah, I think uh, you can argue that three of these teams can make the playoffs. Uh one of those, one out of the three of those teams that I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to, I have it rated very low. Um, but we'll start on top. Cleveland, uh, the Cleveland Browns coming in at 13 and four. I think they added a lot on defense. That was their biggest weak spot, and they really shored it up. Uh, another year to. Uh, gain that team chemistry. Hopefully Odell can come back from injury 
uh, from that injury well, and he can really get on the same page as Baker Mayfield. And you have one of the best run games in the league. I think really the sky's the limit for this team. And the only thing that's going to hold you back is a little bit your defense and just how is Odell going to perform post-injury. Yeah, it's a big question with this team. And another thing, I have Cleveland also coming in first place, I should say. I have them tied for first place at 12-5. and five. And when I look at this team, it starts with Odell on offense. They were finally starting to figure out how to use Odell Beckham Jr. One of his last games, he had three touchdowns, one of which was a 45-yard end around for the win. He has huge playmaking ability, and the Browns and Kevin Stefanski were just figuring out how to use it correctly. How to get him back to... When he got traded to Cleveland, he was a top five receiver in the NFL. He was fantastic. Rookie of the year. He's not been that since Cleveland. They were figuring that out, though. And so I'm excited to see how he adapts, how he enters that situation. And especially this whole Browns team, that postseason experience that they got is going to be massive. I mean, this team went from just a young, up-and-coming team to a veteran team now. They're ready to go out there and be successful. These guys, all getting a little bit older, not old, old, but they're advancing in their careers to the next level. Next level. Baker Mayfield's no longer this kind of like up-and-coming quarterback. Like He's thrusted himself into not the top 10, but borderline top 10 quarterback. He's thrusted himself there. He's only going to get better. And the moves they added on defense, I loved what they did because the Browns' defense was it wasn't great, just to say the least. But what they did was add at each position. When you look at what they did, each level, I should say, of the defense. Defensive line, you have Miles Garrett. Fantastic. One of the best pass rushers in the league. He needs a good opposite to him. Olivier Vernon dealt with injuries and just wasn't the same guy. You go out there and add Jadavion Clowney. Injury history. Yes, but for what they got him for, worth it? Absolutely. You don't know... What you're going to get, but for the price they got him, you're going to take a chance. You're going to take a flyer, figure out what you have there with him. And then Jeremiah Wasu-Kormoa, a linebacker, great pick in the second round. You bring up speed to the linebacking court. Him and Mac Wilson are going to be flying all over the field together. That's going to be a fun duo to watch. And then also, you go to the secondary. They brought in John Johnson at, at safety and free agency. Good pickup. Then in the draft, the first round, they addressed the cornerback spot. Greg Newsom, the second, from Northwestern. Another great pick. I mean, they just got guys that play fantastic football. They're not necessarily the most heralded, heralded players, but they're guys that go out there and play fantastic game in and game out. That's why Greg Newsom, I think, is going to be a big addition. Him and Denzel Ward will be nice in the secondary together. That's why I like this Browns team. I bought into the hype two years too early. So I'm ready to do it again after a year off. It's time to buy into this Browns hype once again. So now, second in the AFC North, who do you have coming in that spot? I have uh, the Baltimore Ravens, just like you, uh, tied for uh, the lead in the AFC North uh, with the Browns. I have them uh, one game higher, 13-4. and four. They're a fun team, but... There are definitely problems, uh, namely passing. 
Uh, Lamar Jackson is a very good quarterback. Obviously, he has the tendency to run more, and you can see that show off in they're the number one rushing offense in the league overall, but you can also see kind of the that go in the opposite way in their the worst passing offense in the league. I think they addressed that partially in the offseason. You tried to go after Sammy Watkins, that didn't work. But you added in the draft, and to me, that's just acknowledging, all right, we we need help at wide receiver. That's something we have to do. And I really think that they can evolve this offense so it's still focused on the run, but a little more diverse. And I really think they can make some waves here. Uh, the division is tough, but they have a very good defense. And their offense, even if they're one-dimensional and running the ball only, they can still win games and put up points. Yeah, I have the Ravens, 12-5, tied with the Browns for first. Like I said, when I look at this team, you made a ton of great points about them. and The division within they play as well. I just don't like the, I guess you call it hesitancy, to not get Lamar weapons. They've consistently gone into the offseason, each of the last two years, needing to add weapons for Lamar. They go out there and they get Rashad Bateman, which was a good pickup, but I still would like a little bit more. You're starting from nothing in terms of the wide receiver position. Marquise Brown hasn't performed for you. And outside that, you go to guys like Willie Sneed. You need a lot more. You signed, in free agency, Sammy Watkins. Watkins, to me, is a number two receiver at best in the league today. He's not a number one guy. So you still had a need at the wide receiver position. Let's see how this goes with that group that they've created this offseason. I think it needed to be better because when you look at this team, Greg Roman loves to have the power run and also the read option off that. It's what he did in San Francisco with Colin Kaepernick. It's what he's doing here with Lamar Jackson. And when you look at the struggles of those offenses, Lamar hasn't been put into a situation where he's had to win with his arm quite yet, where it was, if he doesn't throw for 400 yards, they are not winning this game. With the Niners and Kaepernick, he got thrust in that situation right off the bat after that Super Bowl run. It was week one the following year. He had to throw for 400 yards to beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. He got thrust into having to do that. How did the Niners respond? In the offseason, they added Anquan Bolden, who just had over 100, 150 yards in the Super Bowl that he they just played in. You have Michael Crabtree, who at the time was a top 15, top 20 wide receiver in the NFL, coming off his best season. The Ravens are stuck in that position, and instead of handling it by adding big weapons, they added more to the line. And yes, it's a it's nice to add to your offensive line, but you're just continuing down this path of power run football when it is when the league is starting to zig, they're zagging to that run first type offense. But at the end of the day, if you want to get past Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, you're going to need 35, 40 points. And you're not going to be able to just run the ball all game long. If you want to get past a team like the Browns now, you're going to have to do that. This Ravens team is extremely talented, but it's time to start putting them in a different light. We've talked about, okay, they're a good team, one of the better teams in the league. 
Let's see how they respond. That's been the last two years now. Now it's time to actually prove to us that you are that team that we t- we put the Ravens as a Super Bowl contender every year. It's time to actually get in to that category. I'm gonna be I'm a little, being a little bit tough on the Ravens. They are a good team, great roster, but it's time to actually be what they've proclaimed themselves to be the last two years, and that is super actual Super Bowl contenders. And I think that has to start this year. I had them coming in at 12 and five, and they could make a statement by winning this division again. That would be a huge statement for them. So before we go to break here, we're going to take a look at the third spot in the AFC North. Who do you have coming in there? I have overall uh, the at number three. I have uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, but I have them falling off an absolute cliff. Uh, you're thinking, no, it's it's probably like eight and nine. They they were very good last season, fall off a little. No, I have them at five and twelve. I think they're gonna be terrible. And I'll tell you why. Because the offensive line is an absolute mess. The run game is a mess. You tried to address that with uh Najee Harris, and I like the pick uh late in the first round, best running back in the draft, but then you draft mostly uh, tight end and defense. Where's the help to the offensive line? You Your running attack was bad because your, your running backs didn't have anywhere to go. They were swallowed up at the line of scrimmage. And they're not a team like the Ravens who run the ball best in the league and their passing game is not good. They, the Steelers, run the ball worst in the league, and their passing game, exactly middle of the road. Just okay. And part of that is, like I said, that, uh, that offensive line. Ben Roethlisberger was the second most pressured quarterback, and he had the least amount of time to throw in the pocket. He's one year older. There is a lot of talk about how he's on this strict uh, fitness and physical fitness regimen. I I don't buy it. I I think he is, but I don't think that's going to matter too much. Athleticism was never a big thing that was the reason he's good. Overall, I think he's really shown that he's just not an NFL caliber quarterback anymore. And keeping him out there for another year is going to go poorly and he's going to just play very bad and overall I think he's going to bring down your team so much you would be better starting off starting with someone like Mason Rudolph their defense is fantastic but that's not a you you need to score points to win games and I don't think they're going to score many points this year yeah that defense being so good is why I have them at eight and nine and third in the division I have them right about average losing record but close to average and that's where you see teams with either you normally have one side of the ball that's fantastic and one that's not so good you see them fall in that eight and eight range seven and nine range for example the Arizona Cardinals you look at that team they got the offense they got all the players in the world in offense defensively not that great and that's why you get 8-8. Eight eight. 
So for me, I have the Steelers there at eight and nine. And this team, it really, as an organization, has made some questionable moves. I'd say the last five years, I'd put it there, especially this offseason, but the last five years, one, how they handled the Le'Veon Bell situation, still think that was very poorly. And also, you look at the Antonio Brown situation, before the Raiders, everything that happened there, look strictly at the situation with A.B. getting into it with Big Ben, and they pretty much just sided with Big Ben. So as soon as that happened, he won it out, and A.B. went on. He just got a Super Bowl championship this last year. The Steelers are finding themselves in a tough position, salary cap not on their side. They found a way to get Juju back for a year, but even Juju, he went from that year with Antonio Brown, everyone talking about him being a almost a borderline number one, to a number three on his own team right now. And it's just crazy to me the jump backwards he made after Antonio Brown left. Everyone called out Antonio Brown for saying that he made Juju. Uh, I mean, look what he did. He, I mean, Juju, his rookie year looked fantastic. Juju's not looked near as good the rest of the way. So this team has issues, but the defense is going to save them. It's going to keep them average for me, but the only thing nice I like about adding Najee Harris, you give Big Ben something that he's shown he really likes, and that is that safety net, that check down out of the backfield, an elusive, a physical, a true, a truly talented running back. James Conner is a good running back, but he's not a Najee Harris. He's not a Le'Veon Bell. So adding that, yes, I see what you're doing. Should it have gone elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. But I see what you're trying to do for this team. You're putting all your marbles on Big Ben, which in the past has worked for you. And I think it's time to realize that it may not be the right direction to go anymore. I think that's something the Steelers will realize this year. We're going to take our second break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the best receiver of the 21st century and also our fourth and final spot in the AFC North. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And before we went to break, we were going through our AFC North predictions, and we have one spot left in the AFC North, and we both have the same team remaining. David, what record do you have the Bengals coming in at? I have the Bengals coming in at 4-13. and I, I like what they have in like a foundation of the team, but... You don't have much on defense. You you have Joe Burrow, hopefully your franchise quarterback. You gave him help in the draft, but your offensive line is bad. He's coming off a serious knee injury because you didn't have much of a run game. He was dropping back to pass 50, 60 times a game, and... His offensive line is about as good as Swiss cheese. He's he's getting hit a lot. He needs better protection, and you could have gotten that in the draft with Penny Suell, and you didn't. And I feel like that's going to haunt you for a while. I think this team has a good future. It's, it's relatively bright as opposed to the Steelers, but this year... We might see flashes, a couple breakout games for uh, Joe Burrow, but overall I think they're not going to be very good. 
And they're going to have a high draft pick next year, so that's good. But I have them last in the division, 4-13. and 13. I have them last as well. I have them coming in at 5-12. and 12. And when I look at this team, I agree with everything you just said, but I do love what they've done in terms of building up the weapons that they have. They have a fantastic arsenal. I mean, you have Jamar Chase, who's been the best receiver in college football the last two years. You have Tyler Boyd, who's a very underrated receiver. T. Higgins was fantastic as a rookie. He was fantastic at Clemson. He's only going to get better. And then you look at the running back spot, you have Joe Mixon, one of the best running backs in the NFL. And one pickup I think is going to be underrated for this team, they went out and got Joe Burrows, one of his best targets from that LSU team. They got Thaddeus Moss at the tight end spot now. Now, he didn't do all that well in Washington, hurt all year, and in camp, didn't look all that great. But when you have that deep of a connection with someone, it doesn't go away, and I think Joe Burrow can get Thaddeus Moss to put up his best numbers that he's going to within the NFL. So I look at the weapons, I go, okay, this this team, they're decent. But like you said, the line, the defense holds them back. Will they regret not drafting Sewell? It depends how Chase does. If they get a high pick this year, they could absolutely go lineman and build for the future that way. And then it wouldn't look as bad as to taking Jamar Chase in that situation. But I do think that's going to be a question around this Bengals team, this franchise, and their future moving forward. Was that a mistake? I mean, I'm not going to say it was, but right now, Jamar Chase can get Joe Burrow to a next level in terms of being comfortable out there. And that's the one thing you want from your quarterback who's coming off knee surgery. Make sure he's comfortable out there. Give him someone he trusts because when that pocket starts breaking down and people are falling down by his knee again, he's going to it's he's going to realize that okay, hey, I don't want that, I don't want to get hurt again. But if he can get comfortable, get going early on, this team, I think they get out to five, five and twelve. Could they be a little bit better than that? Sure, but it would take a lot of the defense to overperform to get to that point. So that concludes our AFC North predictions. And the big talking point on NFL Twitter this week, PFF posted out a list. It was Terrell Owens, Julio Jones, Randy Moss, Calvin Johnson, Marvin Harrison, Larry Fitzgerald, Antonio Brown, and Andre Johnson. They put that list out there and they said, who is the greatest receiver of the 21st century? Those were your names to pick from. And the comments were all over the place, all types of different players. And that's to be expected from a question like that. But we're going to limit it down to three in order from one to three. Greatest receiver of the 21st century. I've been excited to talk about this. We're going to start with you, David. First receiver, first greatest receiver of the 21st century. For me, just uh, growing up as a Bears fan, seeing him play uh, twice a year, every year, is Calvin Johnson. He just honestly perfect. Is He's as close to perfect as you can get. He's fast, deep threat because of his speed, his route running, his height, his size, his catch radius. He was just so good all the time at everything and his biggest detraction is 
he retired early. And I don't think that's a knock on him. I think that's a knock on Detroit. It's definitely a knock on Detroit. Uh, but he might not have all the counting stats, but if, let's say, he played three more years, I think he's up there in a couple of those stats, mainly yards, and just how, how dominant he was all the, all the time. It's it's just insane to me that he didn't play longer and the Lions didn't didn't let him play longer. And just how good a player he was all around in every facet of a wide receiver's game. He was amazing. Yeah, I mean, you can't disagree with any of that. He was a fantastic player and for me the only thing that held him back from being within my top three was the fact that he didn't play a little bit longer. I mean, he does. His stats get up there. He's 100% up there as the top guy. And he was on pace to do that. My guy I put at number one, I put Terrell Owens at number one. And a lot of people liked Randy Moss at that spot. I like Terrell Owens for this reason. When I look at what Owens did in terms of catches, he ranks eighth all time. The closest, well, Larry Fitzgerald was in front of him with his second most catches of all time. But then the next closest to him is Andre Johnson with 11 most catches in NFL history. Moss sits at 15th. Then we go to yards. 15,934 yards. Good enough for third all time. Randy Moss sits behind him at fourth. Larry Fitzgerald, he's up there at second once again. Larry Fitzgerald, undeniable how good he was. Now I look at touchdowns, 153. Moss comes in. At uh, Moss comes in at second at 156, and T.O. there at three, at three with 153. So for me, my top two are Moss and Terrell Owens. But I put Owens first because I looked at, one, do you have the stats to back it up? Do you have just – are you a true dominant receiver within the league? Did you change the game? I look at Owens. He's got more catches. He's got more yards, three less touchdowns, and Moss had to come out of retirement to get those three touchdowns to pass him. On that, so I put him there. I mean, you look at this guy. He played on a. It was seven weeks before the Super Bowl. He broke his leg and had torn ligaments in his right ankle. He plays in that Super Bowl just seven weeks after sustaining that injury. He was never once medically cleared by the doctors. Had to sign a release form to come play in that game. And then you think, okay, he's just a decoy. No way he goes out there and has a good performance, right? Plays in 62 out of 72 snaps. Goes for 9 catches for 122 yards. And was covered by Asante Samuel for most of the game, who at the time was one of the best corners in the NFL. I look at Terrell Owens. He wasn't a first bout Hall of Famer, and I take major offense to that. I mean, he's got the numbers. He was so dominant. He would just blow past people. He had the speed, the yards after the catch, the Randy Moss-type catches. He had it all. T.O. was just so dominant. I don't think he gets enough respect as he should. So for me, I put T.O. at the number one spot. Now moving to you, David. Who do you have coming at that number two spot? I have Larry Fitzgerald. I One of my favorite Larry Fitzgerald memories. Uh, he's It's Cardinals versus uh, Packers in the playoffs. Overtime game. Coming down to the wire. A pass right to Fitzgerald. 
split some defenders and just a huge first down and in the end Arizona wins it and just that reason alone he he had my heart and looking at the stats he's up there in leading like career overall receptions touchdowns yards he's such an overall good receiver he he might not be the Calvin Johnson who was elite at every aspect of the game but Larry Fitzgerald was a fantastic receiver in so many a great possession guy he was uh vice-like hands very few drops and his route running and that release was very good he might not have been the fastest guy or the biggest guy but he he was a very fundamentally sound player and how for how long he's played uh, that's assuming this is his last year or previous year was his last year I think he's definitely one of the better wide receivers all time yeah you're absolutely right he cracks my list and he was he's very very underrated at that he does get pushed off just one more spot though I went Randy Moss at my second spot in my top three receivers of all time goes Rice Owens Moss a little bit different from the norm but that's what I have as my top three receivers all time in that order I have Randy Moss here because he catch wise he sits at 15th but he would go for three catches, 160 yards, and three touchdowns. That's what Randy Moss did. It wasn't a surprise. It's what was going to happen every game. So that's why his catch is a little bit lower than most. But I look at just how dominant he was. The only knock I have on Randy Moss and why he drops a few spots was just kind of the inconsistencies. And you look at Oakland, he wasn't Randy Moss, you could say. He was a good receiver, but he was not Randy Moss. And then in New England, he had the fantastic year. He had a good year and then an off year in New England as well and really didn't catch his feet anywhere else. Minnesota was his best stretch of play. But when you look at Randy, what Randy Moss did to the NFL, he changed the game. It, and I look at it a lot like in terms of like Steph Curry. I don't have him as a top five player of all time, but he changed the game forever, and he's one of the best to do it. That's where I see Randy Moss. I mean – Kids these days, they go out and play football. Everyone just wants to go moss somebody. I mean, every, that's what everyone talks about. You just got mossed. He really did bring that to the NFL. Fantastic yards after the catch guy. His speed was undeniable. And he he could out-jump anyone in the league. So he was so much fun to watch. And if he was just consistent throughout his career, he'd easily be the greatest receiver of the 21st century. And if he stayed consistent his whole career... I think he's very easily challenging Jerry Rice for his records, but it's just something he wasn't able to do. So that's why he falls into second for me on this list. Now we're going to move to our third and final spot on our greatest receivers of the 21st century. David, who do you have there? I'm going T.O. Just just purely stats. Purely stats. Top three in receiving touchdowns and uh, receiving yards top 10 in receptions 
the only other player who is in that discussion in out of the guys we're talking about is Larry Fitzgerald. And I already ranked him above. So it's the the obvious choice. And he was just fun to watch. Just a great personality, great charisma that I think really helped the game. And that's off-field stuff. On the field, he was one of the most dominant players, I'd say, ever. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. I, I went on my T.O. rant a little bit earlier. I'm going to drop Fitz in here at this third spot. Very, very underrated receiver in terms of what he was able to do. High-volume guy at that. I mean, he's been the number one guy in Arizona since he stepped foot in the locker room. So it's been a very high volume for him. But the thing that a lot of people say, okay, I don't have Larry Fitzgerald up there over a guy like Julio Jones just because how dominant Julio is in terms of his play, his go-get-it ability, his speed. I would ask you to go watch Larry Fitzgerald highlights the year the Cardinals went to the Super Bowl, that playoff run. He was making diving receptions backwards, going up into double coverage, making catches, and in the Super Bowl caught a slant and housed it, which very possibly could have won the game if the Cardinals defense makes a stop. I'm looking at all these things he's doing. He has the stats. He has the playoffs. And a little fun fact, he has more tackles than he does drops on his career. Who else can say that? Who else can honestly say that? Is it a shot at his quarterback? Sure, but it's also a plus for him. Big time. For me, Larry Fitzgerald in that spot, I think he really, in terms of what he's done over his career, it's not going to be respected as much until he has retired. And you take a look back and you go, wow, he really was dominant. If he was on good teams and the Cardinals were constantly good, he would be remembered a lot more highly than he is. I mean, when you look, when you see people rank their top five receivers of all time, Fitz is in mine. But I go through other people's lists. I don't see Fitz a whole lot in that list. And I wonder, when I look at his stats, I wonder why. I mean, second in catches and receiving yards and sixth in touchdowns. I mean, I do wonder why. I hope we get one more year of Larry Fitzgerald. Right now, it's not looking all that great. But I hope we get one more year of him. And a quick fun fact before I move off of Larry Fitzgerald. He's just so much fun to talk about. He was actually the Minnesota Vikings ball boy when Randy Moss and Chris Carter were going at it for the Vikings. So, just a little fun fact about Larry Fitzgerald. I, I have another fun fact there. Uh, possibly seen it on the internet, but if the Suns win the NBA Finals, Larry Fitzgerald gets a ring because he's a uh, partial owner. That which is? Definitely something to add to his collection of accolades. Yeah, that is true. He'd finally get a championship that he deserves, that he rightfully deserves. So I'm all for it. Get him that ring. We're going to take our last break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to get into the MLB, Ronald Cunha's injury, All-Star game, and what teams have overperformed and what teams do we think have underperformed so far. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back in to Sportsmanlike Conduct on KLA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And now that we've decided who the best receiver of the 21st century is, we're going to move into the MLB. Big week in the MLB world, all-star game this week, home run derby as well, but we're going to start with an injury. Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Atlanta Braves tore his ACL trying to go catch a ball out in the outfield, and looking at this, out for the season now, do you think the Braves can adjust to the injury well? 
I think they can adjust. They have the roster to adjust. I think part of it is going to be the utilization of one of their prospects, Christian Pache, uh, and moving guys around there. Uh, he's, He's more of a center fielder and just hoping, all right, his bat has developed enough in the minors and you can put him in a major league setting and he'll be okay. I think that's a big part of that adjustment, but I don't think it's really arguable to say Ronald Acuna Jr. was the best player on that team. If you look at just by war, he is 1.1 more war valuable than the next closest player. And the next closest player is a pitcher, so it's not exactly equivalent but he was just so much of that team and it's going to be hard to replace him because you really do have to just straight up replace him for this season. I think Ender Enciarte is not the worst, but he's he's nowhere near Ronald Acuna Jr. offensively or defensively. Yeah, when I look at it, you look at the place they're at in the season, just a little bit lower than 500 right now. It makes it even more difficult, in my opinion, to try to replace someone like this. Can they adjust to it? Sure. Well and or replace him? I'm going to say no because you don't just replace a guy like Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, he's one of the best players in the MLB. He's an all-star. He's batting 283 at 24 homers before the injury. I mean, you look at him, just one of the best players in the league. He's not easily replaceable. You talk about leadership within this organization and what he brings to this team. You look at the fans. I mean, he's one of those players in the MLB that fans feed off of him. I mean, he's a fan favorite. Guys like to watch him play. So for me, no, I don't think they can adjust all that well. They sure they can adjust to get by, but I don't expect them to adjust well enough to truly help them out at this point in the season. And now looking at it, Further, do you think they'll be able, still be able to make the playoffs without Acuna? I I don't think so. That just the NL West is so tough this year, and really the the Braves haven't been very good. They're they haven't been over five hundred, I think, at all this year, and currently sitting in third behind the Phillies and the Mets. Those are two, I think, pretty solid teams. They definitely have weaknesses, but the Braves pitching is not good. You, It's injured, and it's, it's very young and inconsistent. You really don't have a lot of tried-and-true guys who you know you can depend on because most of them are injured. So it's it's definitely going to be a very hard time to be a Braves fan because you have this fun team, this young team, and it's just not doing what it should because of injuries and just a little bit of underperformance. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think they make the postseason. And even with Acuna Jr., I'm, I don't think they would have made the postseason. It would have been a struggle 
to try to get in. I just didn't, I don't picture them even getting in at that point. So now it gets even more tough for them. They struggled. They've struggled all year long. They've not been the team that I expected them to be. I expect them to be better than this. But when you look at it, it was a great point you brought about the 500. It's seems like every time they get close to 500, they start to drop off a little bit. Then they race back to close to 500 and then they fall back off again. And that's kind of been the way it's gone for the Braves all year long. So for me, no, they're not going to make the playoffs now. And I don't think they would have previously with Acuna Jr. You brought up the NL West. I mean, it just, they're so dominant. And you look at these other teams, they're just, for me, the Braves are so middle of the pack that it would have been very tough for them to get in whatsoever. Now we're going to take a look at the All-Star Game and the festivities around the All-Star Game, I should say. First, we'll start out with the Home Run Derby. In my opinion, looking at it, it got a lot of attention this year. A lot more than it has in the past. Do you think that's going to become a new norm for baseball, getting this kind of spotlight and more attention? I think it's it's definitely a possibility. You just have to continue just you have to keep going in the right direction and that's not something the MLB is always great at uh it it helped that there were a lot of young players in that pool of guys Shohei Otani obviously one of the best players in the league right now arguably the best just phenomenal he he's one of my favorite players and we don't even speak the same language. It, it doesn't matter because he's so much fun. All that personality he gives off without really saying anything is fantastic. And I think you can get home run derbies like this in the future. You just have to get good young players to buy in and maybe... Uh, participate multiple times because it's been a trend to like guys like Aaron Judge you play in one you win one and done I'm not doing the home run derby anymore so if you can get guys like Pete Alonso to try and win go for a third straight fourth straight that's I think that's a huge selling point yeah and you made this point to me earlier in the week that Pete Alonso made more from the home run derby win than his contract. And if I was him, I'd definitely be doing the home run derby left and right. Two straight wins and you're making more than your contract. I'd be in it every single year if that was the case for me. But when I look at this, when I look at the big three sports, I guess you could call it, you look at the NBA, the MLB, you look at the NFL. When I look at their league's marketing and how well they've done at marketing, I think I think the MLB comes up in third in terms of how they've marketed these players. It's brought up, it's a talking point brought up quite a bit when you look at Mike Trout. You compare him to Mahomes or Brady or LeBron or Steph Curry. Who gets talked about as much? It's always ESPN's full of LeBron, Patrick Mahomes. It's never, okay, Mike Trout too. He does get his attention at times, but it's kind of below that of Mahomes, Brady, LeBron. The MLB, I think, now is starting to get some major attention. And I do agree. It's with those young players. It's making the game exciting. The game is fun. Shohei has everybody on the edge of their seat every single night. He's brought 
so much attention to the league. It's so much fun to watch. That's why, I mean, now on ESPN, you it's LeBron, it's Patrick Mahomes, and it's Shohei. Like, that's the guys being talked about right now. They're finally starting to really brand themselves in a way that I think is positive, and it's going to be a good look for the MLB moving forward. Because one of the issues they've also had, it's why they looked at pace of play and other things like that, was getting a younger audience. Now they're getting it. Now they're starting to get all this attention, and I think it's just fascinating for the sport. And when you look at the Home Run Derby in particular, one moment that stuck out to me a lot was when Pete Alonso, he was a couple home runs away from winning his round. He took a timeout with over a minute left just to hype the crowd up. What a fantastic moment. I mean, that is something that you watch that, that Home Run Derby, you're always going to remember. I thought that, that was my favorite part of the Home Run Derby, to be honest. Just getting the fans into the game and getting them that excited, I think it is great for the sport of baseball and a trend in the right direction at that. And now looking at the Home Run Derby, it was a great one. You had two home runs that set records in terms of distance, Trevor Story, and then you got one at 520 as well. You got 518 and 520 in that matchup. And also you have Pete Alonso go out there, hit 35 home runs in his opening round. Was the high-scoring, high-flying home run derby by design? Absolutely. 100%. And while we can't say... I say 100% because that's what it looks like to me. We can't always say because the MLB is just always doing their own thing. But the thing that signaled that they wanted big numbers here was the humidor. That's a place where they store uh, balls to uh, kind of cancel out the big elevation factor. All the balls they used in the Home Run Derby were had never spent a single minute in the humidor. And that's just fantastic. I think this was one of the best Home Run Derbies I've seen. There were problems with it, though, and I think that comes from not the sport itself, but the coverage of it. It's on, like, the ESPNs, and uh, I can't remember the MLB TV. The biggest example was Salvador Perez. He's going out there, his round, he puts up 27-28, which... I believe was the second highest in the first round. Unluckily, he got matched up with Pete Alonso, but the whole time Salvador Perez is going about hitting these absolute monster shots, they're interviewing Pete Alonso. They don't even make a mention of Salvador Perez. And I I really do think that is in part in large part because of that big market bias it's like all right new york is mets we're going to talk about that and who cares about the kansas city royals you need to you're not going to pay attention to every team equally but you have to at least keep up the facade of caring about every team equally talk about the guy who's at bat in the home run derby and the fact you're not doing that is just nonsensical to me 
Yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. And there's also another part of coverage that we're going to get into in just a second. But when I look at this home run derby and was it by design, I'm with you 100%. Yes, it was absolutely by design. The MLB is seeing this kind of this brand new spotlight they're getting, and they love it. And they're like, hey, we're going to take full advantage of this. We're, I mean, Shohei Tani, he's getting all this attention for his home runs and what he's doing. They put him in the home run derby, and you get some good guys like Pete Alonso in there as well. They're building up these younger guys. One guy I would have loved to see in there was Fernando Tatis Jr. And actually another storyline of the All-Star game that I thought was just phenomenal, Freddie Freeman, his kid, he, he told, Freddie Freeman's child told him that he needed him to make the All-Star game so he could meet Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, just how funny is that? It's just great. And it's a great story to follow as well. He did end up meeting Fernando Tatis Jr. Do not worry. But yeah, I mean, the Home Run Derby, they knew that the spotlight was on. With Shohei there, they were going to have a lot of viewers, and they took full advantage of it. It was absolutely by design. I think it was great by the MLB. I know for me personally, this is one of the only MLB All-Star games that, I, I mean, Home Run Derbies, I should say, that I've, I was very excited to see how it went down and once I saw the results of it I was like okay like I mean that's exciting that is awesome so for me I do think it was absolutely by design and one thing that I know we talked about earlier um in the last couple days you talked about having the mics on the players and the mic'd up situations there and a couple issues that you had with it is it something you'd like to see further with the MLB or something that you think should be strictly for all-star games or possibly even cut in general? I like it. I'm I'm a fan of just mic'd up in every sport, but they just didn't do it, it well in the all-star game. And I, th- I think, again, it's not on the MLB. It's how it's covered because you have, I, I think, just the choice to mic up a pitcher was a bad choice. They're they're completely focused in on pitching and only pitching. And just the motion that they go out and do repeatedly is not a good nat sound. And then on the other hand, you have the uh, commenter- commentators talking to a guy mid at bat. Like, come on. He's not going to respond to you in any meaningful manner I think you have to do it in certain spots mainly probably the dugout pre-game and you can probably do the outfield or uh, the field in general because more the outfield because it's guys kind of alone out there and showing just them is is a safe way uh to keep the FCC off your back and to really focus on those guys because they're going to have the occasional defensive play. And if they make a, a play while they're mic'd up, that's great. But if they don't, okay, you had, you had an interview with a guy and it was in-game. I think that's really a great thing to do. Just... The coverage of the MLB needs to change. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I like the mic'd up. And it's one of my favorite parts of any sport when you see it. I, the NFL for years, NFL Films, has done mic'd up videos. I mean, they go back all the way to the 80s of guys getting mic'd up. 
and they're great. It's great to listen to and watch some of these. I think the same for the All-Star game. Like you said, in some instances, I think the outfield's a great one to try to do because, I mean, it's not necessarily as busy um, for players as it would be as a pitcher or a hitter at that point. But you get a guy on the outfield and gets one hit out to him, and all of a sudden you get to hear his reaction as he's running after the ball. And these players, especially in the All-Star game, they like to have fun with it, make it a little more interesting. I know one mic'd up clip that everyone talked about for a while was Anthony Rizzo when he was chasing, chasing down Freddie Freeman um, as he was heading back to second base. And he's yelling Frederick at him. Everyone talked about that for a while. I think the MLB can take that and go, okay, let's try to do this more. It doesn't have to be live. I, I got your point that you made about uh, the interviewing while you're at bat, things like that. It doesn't have to be live, but just adding more to the coverage of the game, like you said, I, I think that would work out well, and that's a good way to do it. And in the All-Star game, if you can get away with talking to players in mid-game, that's also exciting as well. I know if I was a player in mid-game situation, that All-Star game, I guess different story, I, I'm fine with. But real game, I mean, unless I'm out in the outfield, I, there's not a chance that I would be uh, have a mic on me at that point for a live interview, I should say. For after the game, absolutely. Yeah, and the MLB has done this well before. You look back to the uh, 2019 All-Star Game, you have Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger both mic'd up at the same time talking to each other, and I think it was Joe Buck at the time, but like that worked. One of them, I believe it was Bellinger, actually had a ball hit to them, and like that, that worked. They were able to talk well, have a semi-meaningful conversation, and it was interesting because it's a mic'd up moment in the game. This past uh, All-Star game, not so much. Yeah, I mean, you look at mic'd up moments also in golf. Just this past week, they had the Aaron Rodgers-Tom Brady duel. And I mean, how many mic'd up moments have you seen all over social media from that? You got Gronk coming into a phone call with Rodgers and Brady. And yes, there's a lot more downtime in that. But just you can use it situationally to really help your broadcast out. I mean, you got Aaron, you got uh, Tom Brady over there talking to Aaron Rodgers as he's getting ready to putt, saying, I'm out here scouting the, the leader of the Packers, or at least I think so. And you got Gronk saying that he thinks he was working out more than Aaron Rodgers was when, he, when Gronk was out of the game. Just a lot more. You bring a lot more fun to it. And I think this would... The All-Star Game is a great time to showcase something like that. But the All-Star Game, as great as it is, after the All-Star Game, it's time to get back to work. You get back to your real teams, you got to get going again. Looking, All-Star Break now done, what teams up to this point do you think overperformed? I think the biggest overperformance for me is, uh, I'm going to say the Mariners. They're right now 38 and... 48, my bad, 48 and 43, which is much better than I expected them to be coming into this season. They've been, they haven't made the playoffs since 2001, uh, and they've never won a World Series, so they've always been kind of uh, lower on the totem pole, and you can see it relatively well with some of the stats. If you look at their run differential, it's negative 50. That's not where you want to be. 
and that puts their expected win-loss at 40 and 51. So they are performing above where their true talent is, or at least their true talent according to uh, the amount of runs scored or runs against. So I think they will uh, kind of regress to the mean. But I would, I would love... I'm so excited for this Mariners team. It's a great young team. A lot of top-notch prospects that I think are going to be called up soon. And I'm excited to watch them in the coming seasons. Yeah, and that's the thing, too, about these over overperforming teams. Some of them have bright futures. They're just not quite there yet. And in my opinion, the Mariners are a team that find themselves in that spot. And a team I'm going to look at here is the Reds. And when I look at the Reds, a record of 48 and 42 right now, 8 and 2 in their last 10. When I say overperforming, when I look at this team, they have a good team. Don't get me wrong. But when I look at their record and where they sit within the NL Central, I think there's teams there's teams better than them lower in the NL Central in general. Their pitching has been improving and I think that's going to be something that's going to help them moving forward. So improving pitching that I think's keeping them afloat right now, but if they start to struggle in that region a little bit, this Reds team's going to fall from that 48 and 42 record. Right now only a couple of games, four games out of the lead in the NL Central and a playoff spot. For me, good team, but they still need some work done to that team to get where they should be, where they want to be, I should say. And now looking, we looked at overperforming teams. I look at some teams that have underperformed. Where who do you think that is? Uh, for me, it's a a combination of the Yankees, who just they came into the season with high the highest hopes. They were going to be a uh, a World Series contender. They were going to get back to the playoffs, get back to the World Series, get some rings, and they're three games above five hundred, uh, fourth in their division eight games back. Part of that is the Boston Red Sox surprising everyone, but the Yankees have been inconsistent at best. Their pitching is not great outside of Garrett Cole and the currently long-term injured Corey Kluber. You need more than that. The bullpen hasn't been great. Aroldis Chapman is imploded. You don't have much in the way of left-handed batters. A number of your guys are injured. And you just you aren't playing as you should. And there isn't really a way to fix that. You can't just flip a switch and it's all better. You're playing as you should. And the the perfect team to that exemplifies that is the Angels. Because they do it every year. They're wasting Mike Trout, and it makes me sad. Trout is injured, so there is a little asterisk next to why they're not good. But even when he was on the team, they weren't performing well. They're, it's their pitching. It's always their pitching and just poor management. They need to really invest in their pitching, which they did in the draft. They picked 20 pitchers out of 20 picks. And... It, it was a no-hitter because they didn't draft any hitters. And I think they really 
they really went the NFL route and drafted a position of need. So hopefully they can get better. Hopefully Shohei Otani can stay healthy and have this kind of a season either continually in the rest of the season with Mike Trout coming back or next season with hopefully some better pitching. Yeah, the team I'm looking at for my underperforming team is a team that I've called them out a couple different times for underperforming. I picked them to win the NL Central right now, eight games out. And when you look at this Cardinals team, 44 and 46, they're currently tied with the Cubs. They sit three and four in the NL, in the NL Central, respectively. Pitching hasn't been good for the Cardinals, hasn't been all that great. You look at their hitting, it's streaky at best. I mean, you get some good and you get some really bad. And that's what comes with this Cardinals team. One player specifically I'm going to focus in on here is Paul Goldschmidt. I think he needs to play a little bit better for this team. Right now, batting 265. He's only batted under 285 three times in his whole career, his whole 11-year career, and one of which was his rookie year. I mean, this is a guy that's he has multiple different seasons batting up over 300. He's got to get into the swing of things. This Cardinals team kind of escapes, I guess, the media criticism that the, we give these other teams. This Cardinals team was supposed to win this division. Everyone talked about how the Cardinals, I mean, this big trade for Arenado, they should win this division. Eight games out of first place right now. For the Everyone talking about the, the struggles that the Cubs are having, Cardinals and them have the same exact record. And the Cardinals were really supposed to be this dominant team. And media is talking about the Cubs selling everybody at the deadline. Why not the Cardinals? So, for me, they're my underperforming team. So now our last topic here for next episode is who is one team that you think is going to break out after this All-Star break? I think it's going to be Toronto. I'm, I've am i always been on the Blue Jays hype train since they brought up uh, Bo Bichette and uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as well as Kevin Biggio. I, they're just fun to watch. I think their just expected wins, win loss is a little higher based on their run differential. They'd be at about uh, fifty and thirty-seven, and they're in the toughest division in baseball right now. So they have they have a ways to go. They have to focus on pitching coming up to the trade deadline. And I, I think that's what they're going to be doing, adding a decent bit of starting pitching and bullpen. But when the guys they have are performing well, Robbie Ray, uh, Hyun Jin Ryu, and the rookie who I, I was very high on, uh, Alex Manoa, when they're pitching well, this team, when they go, this team goes. And I think they have a chance to make the playoffs, they just need to add some pitching, and they're going to go on. I think they're going to be very uh, hot coming out of the All-Star break. Yeah, my team, it's not that they're not hot right now because they're a fantastic team, but I'm going to look at them in terms of the division they play, and I'm looking at the NL West. You got the Giants at 57 wins that I don't think anyone could have predicted that. And then you look at the Dodgers at 56 wins, two games behind the Giants, I'm talking about that team in third place, six games behind the division lead currently, the Giants. This Padres team has been great. 
Do not get me wrong whatsoever. Fantastic team. They have the pitching. They have the, the bats. They have what you want. Now it's time to put it together on a consistent basis. What I've noticed about this Padres team is it's a streaky team, a consistently better team, but a streaky team at that. They'll go on little slumps, and that's hurt them through the first half of this season. Now moving into the second half after this all-star break, I think they're going to right the ship a little bit in terms of that streakiness. They were 4-6 and six heading into the all-star break. I think this is going to be a team that when you look at what they're doing, more consistent winning as opposed to some slumps. They're going to catch up to the Dodgers. They're going to catch up to the Giants. It's going to be a great division to watch down the stretch. I mean, you look at the records to begin with. I mean, had the top records. But in terms of Dodgers, Padres, chasing a team like the Giants, I mean, that's a shock to just about everybody, including myself. And I think this Padres team is going to take off a little bit and close that six-game gap and hopefully, possibly even catch the Giants and the Dodgers there at the top of this division. So that concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. If you're on social media, on Instagram or Twitter, follow us at KLA underscore UC and also drop a like on our social media content. If you're on Facebook, look us up at Unsportsmanlike Conduct. That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening and good night. See ya.